1: So, before we get to today's episode, one of my Patreon patrons, Stephanie, had a question about the Velisca Axe Murders interview with Ed Epperly. At one point, Dr. Epperly mentioned that it was believed that the killer had to have been left-handed. Stephanie wanted to know if it was known whether George Kelly was in fact left-handed, so I emailed Dr. Epperly. And this was his response. Kelly was. I can't say about Mansfield. When Kelly was being held for trial in the summer of 1917, county attorney Oscar Wenstrand asked him if he would like some exercise. He said he would. So Oscar gave him an axe and led him to a woodpile where Kelly proceeded to swing The axe left handed. Kelly seemed a little naive to me, but I got the story directly from Oscar during an interview. So, question answered, on with this week's interview. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenus. Hope you're having a marvelous week. It is so great to have Robert Wilhelm with me today. He is an author with a particular interest in 19th century American murders. His blog, Murder by Gaslight, is a compendium of information, resources, and discussion on notable 19th-century American murders. It has been running since 2009, covering over 500 murders since its creation. He has a smaller blog as well called The National Nightstick, which includes illustrations and articles on crime, eccentricity, and the sporting life in 19th-century America. And he's written multiple books as well, including The Bloody Century, Wicked Victorian Boston, Murder and Mayhem in Essex County, and his latest, which is the focus of our interview. It's called So Far From Home, The Pearl Bryan Murder. Great to have you. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thank you for having me, Eric. It's great to be here.
1: Yes. So before we get into your book, I'd like to ask you about Murder by Gaslight. It's long been one of my favorite websites. Uh, why did you start it, and what's it been like to work on it for so long?
2: Well, it's been a lot of fun. Um, I started it originally, I was researching the stories behind American murder ballads, you know, song, folk songs, and I just found so much information. I just started compiling it. And I thought it would make a good topic for a blog. I had no idea it would last so long because, you know, you you assume you're going to run out of topics, but uh, I don't see any end end in sight.
1: So of the 500 or so true crime stories you've written about, you chose this one to write a full-length book about. What is it about this particular story that made it book-worthy material, in your opinion?
2: It was well. The research for this began around the same time as I started the blog, um, and it came from from the songs. There are three folk songs about the Pearl O'Brien case, and reading about it, it just on the face value, it was a story of a woman found decapitated in Kentucky, and the, the prime suspects were Cincinnati dental students. And uh, I thought, well, there's something going on here. I've got to learn more about, and then deeper I got into it. The stranger it became, and I sort of put it on the shelf for a while because other things were were coming up, but it just became more and more intriguing, and sort of the accepted story, the story that's been you know told f- for years, just didn't ring true.
1: I haven't read the accepted story, only yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is the accepted story? Well
2: it's you know when you see it's uh, summarized maybe two or three paragraphs or a page, they'll just say. Uh, That Pearl Bryan left her home in Indiana, went to see her her lover in Cincinnati, either to get married or to have an abortion, and that he and his roommate took her to Kentucky and cut off her head, and the police quickly captured him, tried him, and and a double hanging, but there was really much more involved than that.
1: So let's begin where you begin in your book, the discovery of the body of Pearl Bryan on February first, eighteen ninety-six. Right, uh, which you write was almost a fluke. Uh, it was supposed to be very difficult to find her.
2: Right, it was. Uh, it was on a private property and on a, a farmland, but not too far from an army base. And the soldiers would go there. There was a clearing in the woods that the soldiers would take their dates and their, their lovers, but not usually in, in February, which is which when the murder happened. So the chances are it would not have been found for months, except that the hired hand for the farm took a shortcut to work and came across the headless body. And that started everything. But it was, it was within 24 hours of, of the murder. But it could very easily have been months before it was found.
1: Right, yes. So describe for us, if you don't mind, the scene of the crime.
2: Well, it was blood everywhere, blood on the ground, blood in, in the leaves and the trees above her. And that was a contentious fact throughout the trial and everything, whether whether she was decapitated alive, which would in the heart would be still beating while it was. Well, the decapitation was going on, and that would explain the blood spurts. But there were other, others who said that there was not enough blood to account for something like that. But in any case, her uh, girdle was removed to see if there was any incriminating evidence in the uh, among her clothing, and then they just left her there.
1: Yeah. So this 14-year-old boy who found the body... His name was John Hewling.
2: Right. Well, he goes to his boss, and his boss was actually the brother of a former uh, chief of police. And uh, he contacts him, and he contacts the sheriff's department. And the press, both in Kentucky and in Cincinnati, which was very close across the Ohio River, heard about it right away. And they were actually the first on the scene. In fact, uh, they left so many footprints that it was... Confusing to see which were the, the victim, the murder, and which were the reporters. And, and so, soon after, the you know, spectators came, just average people heard about it, and they, they were taking souvenirs, pieces of bloody dirt and bloody leaves, things like that, and uh, just basically corrupting the scene.
1: So the investigation was meant to be coordinated between the Sheriff's Office and the... Yeah, sh-
2: sheriff of Campbell County, Kentucky and uh and the police department of Cincinnati. Because the you know, the the sheriff didn't really have the resources for a case like this. On the on the Kentucky side it was Sheriff Plummer, Jewel Plummer. And he's he was active from the beginning to the end. And in Cincinnati it was detectives Crimin McDermott who were uh you know, very prominent members of the police department in Cincinnati. And they, uh, they worked together with, with Sheriff Plummer and were usually in concert. Sometimes they would disagree because of jurisdiction.
1: So despite the fact that the crime scene was corrupted, bloodhounds were still brought in.
2: And uh, it was not that helpful because the bloodhounds led them to a reservoir and well, it had been raining all day anyway. So, it, it, and also, the, so many people had trampled over it. It was lucky that the, they could get a scent at all. But it led to a reservoir, and they eventually drained the entire reservoir and found no, found, did not find the head. And th- without the head, they didn't see any way they could uh, identify the body. But fortunately, they were able to trace the shoes to a shoe store in Greencastle, Indiana. And even then the shoe store said no, it couldn't be from it wouldn't be from us, or it must have been someone who was traveling through and bought their shoes and and left. So Krim McDermott and Sheriff Plummer went to Greencastle and actually looked through the books of the shoe store and found that it was the shoes in question were purchased by Pearl Bryan that September. They went to her to her house, brought their brought her bloody clothing. And the the parents identified her from that. It was a very tragic scene. And they denied it, you know. They until they until the sh- sheriff mentioned that the body had webbed toes, which was something they had actually kept oh, kept away from the public, just so they could uh, screen out people, false identifications. And there were a number of people who tried to thought that the den- the body was their their daughter or their sister. But uh, they were able to. The, the family was able to say, "Yes, that was Pearl."
1: Had she been robbed?
2: It was hard to tell. There might have been some jewelry missing, but it, the robbery did not appear to be the, the motive.
1: So her body was taken to the coroner, who conducted an autopsy. Right. What new details were uncovered during the examination of her body?
2: That's where they found out she was five months pregnant, and that changed everything. And in Greencastle, they determined that she had probably gone to Cincinnati to to see Scott Jackson. They they were really not known to be lovers. However, Prosser sort of kept her private life very private, but he became the prime suspect because he was so close to the where the body was, and that he did know her in Indiana.
1: That that was a. Pretty great piece of detective work. Um, they had actually interviewed a Western Union manager named Gus Early.
2: That's right. Um, it, it was. An, it was another. They were very fortunate in, in all of these events. First, finding the body, and then identifying the body, and then the Western Union managers telling them that Pearl, that the her brother was looking for her, where she said she had gone to Indianapolis. And the people in Indiana said, no, she was not here and we weren't expecting her. So they knew she went someplace else. And uh, that's where the Gus Early said, well, maybe she was the one that was found dead. And that oh, that helped to put the final, final nail the, in the identification.
1: He had known Pearl, right? And he had heard rumors that she had been courted by a man named Scott Jackson.
2: Right. He knew he knew Pearl and he knew her, her second cousin, Will Wood, who had always bragged about having relations with Pearl. And but he also knew Scott Jackson. And Will Wood had said that he had got a girl he had gotten a girl in trouble, implying that Wood himself had gotten the girl in trouble and that he had sent her to uh, Cincinnati for the abortion. And many people in Greencastle did think it was, the father was Will Wood.
1: Yeah. Let's talk a bit about Pearl Bryant, if, if you don't mind. Her, her family, her background, her upbringing, the the kind of person she was.
2: Right. Well, they were they were a wealthy, wealthy farm family, and she was the youngest daughter in a family of 12. Uh, she had one younger brother, but... Pearl was always the baby of the family and the one that everyone pampered, but she was very popular uh, you know, among her classmates. And she was a musician. She was going to go to to college and study music, but she was really not known to be not known to be well because no one would know if, there, if she was sexually active. But she was not known to have a regular boyfriend.
1: And despite her popularity, it would later be revealed that. She didn't have many good friends, and, and that's where Will Wood came into play. He was the son of a Methodist minister, but had a pretty terrible reputation in town.:
2: He did. Uh, his father was actually the, the presiding elder of that region of of Indiana, it was a very prominent family. Um, but he was. I think I think that one newspaper said he was called him a degenerate cigarette fiend or something like along those lines, and he would always brag about his sexual conquests and so forth. And no one took him seriously until, until this, this incident. But he was he and Pearl were very close. Um, she had an older sister who had died the previous year of tu- tuberculosis, and uh, Wilwood sort of took her place as the confidant. He was really the only one who knew in town who knew that she was pregnant, and he was writing—he uh, was writing letters to uh, Scott Jackson about, you know, is there any any drugs she could take to end the pregnancy? And he would send her prescriptions, and none of them worked. And finally, they said, "Well, let's send her down here, and we'll get her an abortion." And she was she was okay with that. She just didn't see any way it would work, any other way it
1: would work out. So, yeah, much of this case, in in sorting it all out, is trying to understand these different relationships within this group of acquaintances. So we have Pearl and her second cousin, Will Wood. We have Pearl and her relationship with with Scott Jackson. And we have the friendship between Jackson and Wood.
2: Right. And uh, Will Wood was always trying to... to you know, boost his status with with Scott Jackson, who was uh, six or seven years older. And then later on, he would, he would blame Jackson for for being totally responsible for all of his misbehavior so that you know, everything was fine until Jackson arrived.
1: So Jackson was kind of a ne'er-do-well himself. And Jackson and the rest of these young men and women, they, they all came from... Well-off families, right? And Jackson knew Will Wood because they lived next door to each other.
2: Right, they were next-door neighbors, in, in a rich, rich section of uh, Greencastle. He had come to to stay with his mother after after being fired from Pen- Pennsylvania Railroad for embezzlement, and he managed to turn states evidence in that case and uh, managed to stay out of jail. But he he left the East and moved with his mother and, and uh, that's when he decided to become a dentist and that uh, first he went to the Indianapolis School of Dentistry and w- uh, one New Year's was arrested for causing a disturbance with another bunch of boys at a Indianapolis brothel and, and, and his mother just pulled him out in shame and brought him back to to Greencastle and eventually, he persuaded her to let him go to Cincinnati and try again to study dentistry, and that's where he was when Pearl became, after Pearl became pregnant, and was looking for a way out.
1: Was it Will Wood who had introduced? Yes, he wait, did, Was he, he they the one who had, they,
2: he took her to? He took. I'm sorry. He took Scott Jackson to a Christmas party at uh, at the Bryan home, and he introduced her to Pearl. Introduced her to the family. And uh, what happened next is just a matter of speculation.
1: So Scott Jackson is an interesting character. As far as physical appearances, he had a slight build, and supposedly these mesmerizing blue eyes.
2: Right. Everyone talked about his eyes, and you and, uh, know and how they would capture you and hold you, and uh, steel blue or violet, and you could even see it. In the you know the police photograph, the eyes are really sharp.
1: So while Jackson is studying to be a dentist, he meets a man named Alonzo Walling, right?
2: Right. They they had actually uh, both been at the Indianapolis School of Dentistry the year before, and both had left. Um, They weren't close in Indianapolis, but when they met again in Cincinnati it was like seeing an old friend because they were both strangers in a strange city and they ended up being roommates and they lived within walking distance of saloons and brothels they both when they could afford it like to uh, have a good time but they were also well within walking distance of the of the dental college so it was very convenient
1: could you describe Walling for us Walling
2: was also a Uh, Five or six years younger than Jackson. He was a a tall, strong country boy, not as smart as Jackson. and They would play that up much later that that he was maybe a little bit slow. But they uh, they both liked to carouse and uh, go out with women.
1: We will be right back.
0: Kat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From
1: that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious
0: inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards
1: from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reeva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is
2: the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the
0: audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan. Anne Bonney, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories? Their real stories. Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
1: And we are back. So Pearl Bryan was identified, and it was also discovered that she was pregnant. And Scott Jackson was a suspect soon after, right? Yes, he was. H- how did they start building a case? What did they do next in their effort to solve her murder? Well,
2: they they arrested Jackson right away and, and questioned him as soon as they could and, and late into the night. And then uh, it was about two in the morning and he was still awake in prison and the uh, in jail. A reporter for the Cincinnati Inquirer was sort of Waiting down there, hoping to get some more information from him, and, and Jackson just said to him, "Have they arrested Walling yet?" And the the newspaper man, they knew that Walling was his roommate, but they didn't really connect him to the case at that point. So the the reporter thought he better go go talk to Walling, and he impersonated a police officer and arrested Walling, brought him down to the police station, and that where where the the officers then arrested him and put him in jail and then the next day they questioned both of them alone and together and they started to accuse each other walling said that jackson had planned to murder her as soon as she came to cincinnati and and cut her up and put her put the parts in outhouse vaults throughout the city and jackson said no that that walling had arranged an abortion and had not told him where it was just to so he had deniability and they pretty much stuck to those stories for the next year, except that Walling would finally said, "Well, no, Jackson wasn't going to murder her. he was going to have me do the abortion, but neither of them would admit to seeing her past Wednesday of that week. She had arrived on Monday, and Jackson said walling he had left her in Walling's charge to take her someplace wh- where he did not know and have the abortion, and Walling said no." I saw her on Wednesday, but I didn't talk to her, and I never saw her again in, in life. And they just stuck to those stories. They, you know, they had hoped that one one would turn on the other. Hopefully, that Walling would turn on Jackson and give him enough information, evidence to go forward. But it never
1: happened. Did the men talk about motives?
2: They didn't really talk about motives at, um, at first. You know, when Walling's, Walling was accusing Jackson of murder he was saying it's because you know because she was pregnant and he didn't know what else to do but later he he uh, peddled that back and said well when she, we came down when she came down here we were going to uh, have the abortion and solve it that way but uh, going forward they neither one neither one said murder they said it was a botched abortion but neither one would acknowledge that they were there at the time or knew what the circumstances were they thought that they each said that the other did it,
1: so one of the plans was to give her cocaine, right yeah, was that believed to induce an abortion
2: yeah that's sort of one of the odd features of the case is that uh, cocaine was was not that common in those days, but the dentist dental students used it to uh, as an anesthetic and uh they were they had to provide their own medicines in the school uh, so it was not unusual for Jackson to have cocaine but then the in the postmortem they found cocaine in her stomach and they were had possibly given her that to uh, as an anesthetic or it could have been it could have been an attempt to attempt to poison her but uh, cocaine was was really an unknown drug at the time and then how much it would take to kill her was unknown and they got uh, the newspapers questioned doctors and got a very wide variety of answers to that question
1: so the plan was for either walling or jackson to perform the abortion
2: well the, according to jackson walling had a friend who knew a doctor that could do the work in in kentucky and walling denied ever being involved in it so the the real circumstances are unknown and it would become you know it would become a, a legal issue later on whether she was poisoned in ohio and died in kentucky or whether the whole murder took place in kentucky
1: and that was important because the people of kentucky wanted the trial there
2: right a- actually everybody wanted it there because that was the only way they could get first degree murder and actually have a hanging I mean people were very very disturbed by this case and they wanted justice.
1: So the next step for police was tracing Pearl's steps from the time she arrived in Cincinnati and and her cousin Will was the one that was supposed to accompany her there.
2: Right that's that's apparently what she thought but he begged out at the end and put her on the train alone. And she arrived in In Cincinnati alone, and no one was there to meet her because Wood had said, "I'm going to send her today," but he didn't say what train line or what time. So Jackson went to one terminal, and Walling went to the other. Another, there are several in the city, and they didn't find her. So she ended up going to a, a hotel, and finally got word to him at at the college, and he and Walling went to see her at the hotel, and that's where they made the arrangements, or told her the plans that they would go to uh, to a doctor someplace for the abortion. And that night, that night, Jackson took took her to a saloon where where they hung out. And uh, this would this would be Tuesday night, and uh, Walling was there for a little while. And then Jackson took her on a sightseeing to see the city from the hills above. And then the next she slept there that night. Then the next day she's checked out of the hotel, and they don't know what, what happened after that. There was no trace of where, they don't know where she slept. But the saloon, which was called Wallingford's, the uh, the owner and the porter both testified to seeing Jackson with a woman on Friday night, which th- was the night that the murder took place. And they said that they left. he left, the two of them left in a cab, you know, a horse-drawn carriage. Once they had these eyewitnesses to seeing Pearl and Jackson together on Friday. They didn't really care what happened between Wednesday and Friday. It was, they saw them leave, and now that the only thing that they wanted f- at that point was who drove the carriage to uh, Kentucky. And they f- then another uh, uh, a man named George Jackson, who was a uh, a horseman who worked for a rich citizen in Cincinnati, came forward to the police and said he was the one who drove it. And he, you know, he gave some details and details of the trip, and uh, they believed him. But before long, they found out that that wasn't quite true. He had been involved in a some kind of th- in, a, in several theft incidents in S- in Springfield, Ohio, before he came to Cincinnati. And even his father was testifying against him. That he, had, basically, basically the father said he was paranoid. He thought he had enemies everywhere. But this was this was the. How the newspapers reported it, the police were still totally convinced that George Jackson's evidence was true, and he said he drove them across and walling across the river, and while they were driving, he changed his mind because he heard someone groan- groaning in the back, and Walling pulled out a pistol and said, "You know, you know, keep driving or I'll blow you to hell." So he drove him to the place to the murder site and watched as Jackson helped, got out of the carriage. And Pearl was sort of staggering at that point, and he led her into the forest, and that was the last he saw him. He tied up the horse and, and ran home himself. George Jackson did.
1: Once he had told his story, police immediately organized a lineup, right?
2: They did. That was, that was the interesting thing. A, a lot of these police... Things that we take for granted today were just not available then. They called it an identification circle, and they filled they filled the circle with ununiformed, you know, jailers, reporters, whoever happened to be in the room. And there were about forty people. Then they they put Jackson Walling and Will Wood, who was also in jail at that time, into this identification circle, and then George Jackson, you know, went around the circle and. He pointed out Walling right away because he was probably the tallest man there. and he had trouble with with Scott Jackson because he hadn't he said he hadn't seen his face clearly because he was in the back of the of the carriage when he was ta- when he was taking they were taking Pearl across the river. So he hadn't seen his face until he got out of the carriage. But George Jackson was in the, in the circle, nose to nose with with actually with a reporter trying to see if it's the man. And uh, one of the police officers said, Jackson, step back. And just instinctively, instinctively, Scott Jackson took a step back, thinking they were talking to him. And George Jackson picked up on it right away and then identified, a few minutes later, identified Scott Jackson as the man that came out of the carriage with Pearl. So the police took that as, as an accurate identification, but it was contested then in court.
1: So with cases like this, a, a lot of interesting characters come forward, uh, sometimes with evidence of their own, and, and sometimes with information that hinders the investigation. And one of the ultimately discredited stories was told by a woman named Lulu Hollingsworth.
2: Right. She She, she was in in Indianapolis, and so the way that happened is... The police chief of Greencastle got a short note signed with just initials saying that this woman in Indianapolis, Lulu Hollingsworth, has information about Pearl Bryan, and you should go and talk to her because she's likely to leave town. So they go and pick her up, and first of all, she doesn't want to talk at all. She's very angry with them and so forth. But finally, agrees, Yes, I knew Scott Jackson. I knew Pearl Bryan. I knew Will Wood. Knew everybody but Walling. And that he, she met Pearl at the train station in Indianapolis, where she would have to change trains to go to Cincinnati. And and she was able to tell that Pearl was pregnant. And then the Pearl told the story. And then Lulu said, "Well, I can help you." And according to Lulu, they went and bought some drugs at at various pharmacies she took the pearl took the drugs went back to cincinnati and allegedly died in scott jackson's apartment and uh you know this would change the whole case change the uh the jurisdiction where the where she would be prosecuted and they were ready to send her for questioning to cincinnati then the the indianapolis police questioned her one more time and now his story became Really extravagant. She said that she actually performed an operation on Pearl in the hallway of of a hotel in town, and that she died. Again, she died as a result of the abortion, but not till she got to Scott Jackson's room. But there had been two post mortem operations, and both of them concluded that an abortion had not even been attempted—a physical abortion. So uh, the story became impossible. To maintain, and uh, they eventually let Hollingsworth go. She said she would. She said she had a letter to prove prove the truth, and she would come out before the boys hung, um, but she never did.
1: And why do you think she made that up?
2: It's that's a good question, and it's, and it's the same one about assuming that George Jackson was lying. Well, why did they do it? Just for attention, and you know, in, there are often false confessions and false information in murder cases even now. So it's still an open question, did she know anything about the case or was it pure fiction?
1: Another person that surfaced with information was a woman who called herself a spiritualist, a medium.
2: That's right, yeah, uh, Mrs. Weeks. And she claimed that the couple came to her, It would be she described them as Jackson and Pearl, and even said that she would. She called him Doc, which was Jackson's Cincinnati nickname, and he called her Pearlie. Although it was more likely that in Greencastle she was no, he was known as Dusty, so she would have more likely used the term Dusty for him. But anyway, she took a seance with this woman and uh, admitted that she has, was pregnant. And according to the spiritualist on, in the seance. Pearl's sister came to visit her and said, go, "You must go home and have the baby." But Pearl said she couldn't do that. But she sort of she was starting asking, asking the spiritualist, "Is there any, any way you can take care of a poor erring creature like me?" And uh, Mrs. Weeks denied having any knowledge of that. But in reality, in the 19th century, a lot of spiritualists were involved in abortion and baby farming, and uh, it was a place to go for information along those lines. So one thought, if that was true, and this would have been on Thursday, a day after Jackson said he had stopped seeing Pearl. And the police liked this story because it it puts the two of them together after Jackson said he had let her go. But it would contradict the timeline later on because others had seen her in Kentucky at the same time. So it was another case. Why did she say this? Was it true? Did she act, did they actually go there? Or was this woman looking for attention?
1: Hmm. So Scott Jackson and Alonzo Walling were held in separate cells and very anxious about the possibility of getting lynched.
2: Right. They were fairly uh, safe in Cincinnati. But once they got into Kentucky... Uh, They were nervous about that because Kentucky had a long history of being impatient, let's say, about court cases and wanting to get the job done quickly.
1: Yeah, there was a tense scene after their extradition. As they were crossing the Ohio River into Kentucky, they saw what appeared to be a mob waiting on the other side. Right. And the two Cincinnati detectives that were escorting them... Uh, basically said, uh, we're out. <laughs> we're done.
2: Yeah, yeah it was, uh, Sheriff Plummer said, "Well, we've just passed the high mo- high water mark. Uh, we're now in Kentucky," and that's when Detective Krim said, "Yeah, if there's trouble, I'm not in it." And he un- un- undid the, the uh, handcuffs, and so did so did the other detective. But it, uh, it turned out that it was more curiosity seekers than actual. Lynch mob, but there had been threats, and there were continually threats. So um, it was not an unfounded fear.
1: One of the interesting scenes in your book, and I I think this was still in Cincinnati, when in order to get information, police put Jackson and Walling in the same cell and installed something called a fly cell.
2: Right. According to the newspapers, that was the first time that it had ever been used. Where they had a, they designed this cell so that the the prisoners would be separated by a by a, a steel wall, but they could talk to each other by you know going to the front of the cell and then they pointed a hidden telephone receiver in the front so that they could pick up any conversations that they had, and then that was strung up to a room on uh, I think it was two floors above. And people would listen on telephone receivers, and take down what was said, but uh, they didn't follow the, the prisoners. Didn't follow the plan. Instead of standing at the front, they walked back and forth, so they could pick up some some words and not others. And they really said nothing incriminating, except to say, well, uh, maybe, maybe one of their friends had snuck them in some cigars and whiskey."
1: Right. There was a steady stream of of young female admirers, right, that visited Scott Jackson.
2: That's right. Um, the odd thing, what I found was odd, is that you know during the day, the jail was accessible. Jail in Cincinnati was accessible to anybody, and people would come down and just stare at the prisoners like they were, uh, you know, sideshow freaks or something. But um, a lot of young women would come down there and give them gifts, cigars and candy. And Jackson was always very friendly to them because he liked young women. Walling could be moody, but they had, he had his followers as well. And uh, you know, every jail, they, and they were in a number of different jails, and every jail they were in, depending on, on how strict the jailers were, uh, they would be visited by young women.
1: So Jackson and Walling were their guys, and there would be two trials— one after the other, uh, in Newport, Kentucky, held in April. Yes. And they were fortunate in the sense that because they came from well-to-do families, they had the money to hire capable attorneys.
2: Yes, that's right. But the problem, well, for early on, the problem for the defense was they couldn't subpoena witnesses out of state. So Jackson's attorney had to come with depositions uh, from people in Indiana, Indiana and in Cincinnati, who, who, you know, with positive statements or statements that would confirm things that Jackson said, but they couldn't force them to, to come across the river and testify. But the prosecution, because of their close association with the police, they could strong arm people to go across the river and testify. And the people in Greencastle were anxious to convict Jackson, and they came willingly. They came as a group and, uh, and, and then all testified against him. I mean, they didn't have too much incriminating evidence, but they would, like, identify the clothing and identify, you know, Jackson and his reputation.
1: Back again, momentarily. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. Oh, well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts.
1: And we have returned. Who was the main prosecutor and what was his case against Jackson.
2: His name was Nelson, and he was actually a private attorney who donated his time to the prosecution. And he was very tall, uh, very commanding person. And he was trying to uh, convince the jury that Jackson cut off Pearl O'Brien's head while she was still alive. And he had uh, doctors to testify that that's what probably happened. Well, they they wanted first degree murder. I mean. They wanted this man to hang, and uh, so he had to kill her in cold blood in Kentucky. And the head was removed to try to hide the identity. However, they took it a step further in saying, yeah, he didn't even bother to kill her. He, He just cut off her head while she was still alive. And they had doctors to testify that, yeah, it's not only possible, it's probably what happened.
1: Why would anyone want to kill her, though? were the men worried about their reputations uh being tarnished if if word got out that she had been pregnant and then had an abortion I don't quite get it
2: i i agree with i, I agree, with, agree with that it's the least likely th- thing they would they would say that he uh he didn't want to marry her and he just wanted to put an end to to the problem but I think it might be that might be also one reason that Jackson didn't say, yeah, we, we set the abortion up and she died during the abortion and just said, okay, would, would the worst case would be manslaughter, but probably not even that. But I th- this is my own conjecture that he thought, well, we didn't murder her, so they can't get us on that. They've got no proof of that, so let's not agree to anything. But I think it was just the fact that it was it was such be so shameful and such a change to his life that they thought this is why he killed her. And he was just a cold-blooded man from the East with, who uh, who didn't care. And I think the, the authorities wanted first-degree murder because there have been cases in Cincinnati and in, in Kentucky where the, the people weren't happy with the verdict. And in, in Cincinnati, it was 10 years earlier, uh, a man got sentence of manslaughter when it was clearly first-degree murder, and it ended up in three days of riots. Um, It was just uh, the trigger event of people not happy with the way the government was performing. But they wanted to avoid anything like that, and they wanted to avoid lynching in Kentucky because they were willing to do it as well. And even in Indiana, in Greencastle, which was the most conservative of of the three locations, People were talking about lynching to the extent that Will Wood couldn't come back home. The sheriff stopped at the, the marshal stopped at the house and said, you know, you've got to take your son back out of here because I can't control the people. So there was always the fear of public unrest. And that that might explain why they went for first degree murder. Even though the really evidence doesn't seem to point to that.
1: During the trial, the question was brought up as as to whether a knife could successfully cut off a head from a live body. Right. And whether ingesting cocaine mm-hmm. could have played a factor in the coagulation of blood.
2: Yeah, these were all unknowns. And cocaine associated with chloroform, which would have been used in an abortion. But the defense had a witness Uh, a very prominent physician who said that if they tried to cut her head off while she was alive, it would take 10 minutes. And there'd be so much blood by the end that they couldn't finish the job. And that seems credible. But the prosecution had had, uh, witnesses, physicians saying just the opposite, that someone who knew the body could do it in, in a matter of seconds.
1: And would Scott Jackson, with only dentistry training, have that skill?
2: Probably not, but the fact that he's a medical man might have might have influenced that. I don't know it just still was what most people believed
1: so there were some really fascinating witnesses and and compelling testimony during this trial. Let's start first with will Wood. Why was he called to testify, and what did he say
2: well he was he was there to uh, put all the blame on Jackson. And, you know, he, that was where he, he said that all of his bad bad behavior started when Scott Jackson moved in next door. And, he, you know, he denied that. He, did, he said that Jackson had, Jackson had sent him the prescription to end the pregnancy, but he had not even given it to Pearl because he didn't want to get involved, which was probably untrue.
1: There were some letters introduced into evidence written by him which painted him in a pretty bad light.
2: Right. the def- Yeah, the, de- the defense had letters that he had sent to Scott Jackson. None of them were directly related to the case, but they all had showed his character as bragging about drinking, bragging about womanizing and uh, deceiving his parents and so forth. It showed him in a very bad light.
1: And letters were read... Letters that were sent by Jackson to Pearl, which revealed an intimacy between them.
2: Right, but it, they, none of them were incriminating in the sense that they didn't, I didn't. they were like letters to from one friend to another. And one letter that really influenced the jury and the crowd was after her sister died, and he sent a, a letter of comfort, and saying, "I know I, I would go and see you, but I, I'm sure you're too too busy with." Uh, your family, and uh, but just to send my condolences and to say that she's in a better place and things like that. And it was the first time that anyone in the courtroom had seen any kind of humanity from Jackson.
1: I think some of the most stunning testimony was from Scott Jackson himself. Will you walk through with us what he said, some of the things he admitted doing?
2: Yeah, his attorney pretty much just let him go and and talk, but he he was prompting him to talk about the trouble he had been in previously, like in in New Jersey, where he was caught for embezzling from his company, and uh, then turned state's evidence against his co-conspirator, and then again when he was back when he was in Indianapolis, he you know, testified about the uh, being arrested in the brothel on New Year's. These were things that uh, you know everyone had read in the newspaper, but no one expected him to bring up in the trial. And they even uh, even went to, so far as to say that he did have sexual relations with Pearl, but it was after she was pregnant, and that was that was sort of to align with the testimony of his boss, who was a dentist in Greencastle. He had said that uh, Jackson was. Concerned about Pearl, and then he went to see her, and had had changed his story. And I'd have to, I'd have to actually look it up, but it, it made it sort of made his testimony align with the boss's testimony a little bit more. But it seems a, a little bit too incriminating to even admit it at all. But everyone expected the prosecutor then to tear him apart. And when it was his turn to question, he said, "I have no questions for this witness." And that, that some people believed that was going to turn the case, that he just had let Jackson get away with his own testimony with no challenges. Because he had also said that Will Wood was responsible for the pregnancy. Willwood had sent her to him for an abortion, that Walling had taken her for the abortion, and he knew nothing about it. And none of that was challenged.
1: The two opposing lawyers were Nelson and a guy named Crawford.
2: Crawford was his attorney and Nelson was was the prosecutor
1: and Nelson took a lot of flack for that right for not cross-examining
2: he did he did um, and it seemed like the following day he came hard on on the rest of the witnesses that the defense was bringing you know even accusing one of them of being drunk and went hard off, hard after uh, jackson's landlady who uh who was one of the few character witnesses that jackson had and that was then another interesting event where the judge finally got sick of it and said you have got to stop the questioning and he was trying to get her to say that she knew always knew where every one of her rumors was at any time during the day or night and he was trying to, to get her to admit that she did not know where jackson was that night and the judge finally had enough and uh Nelson said, "Well, there's nothing can be as certain as a woman," and Crawford said, "Yes, so They're just—they're generally right." And Nelson said, so, "Nelson said, uh, you haven't been around decent people enough to know, or something along those lines." And Crawford took it as, an, as a gross offense, and they argued back and forth until the judge finally f- finally fined Crawford for contempt of court, and. Uh, it ended up they were they kept bantering back and forth, and it sounded like Nelson said, "I'll meet you, I'll meet you outside, or any time you choose, or something like that." And because it was in Kentucky, where dueling was still not unknown, people expected them to actually go out and have a duel. But nothing, it didn't, it didn't happen. The, that was on a Saturday, and when the court reopened on Monday, they were, they were both there, but they. They kept up the feud, the, uh, the animosity for most of the rest of the trial.
1: So there was a, a bit of a twist in this courtroom drama when a man named William Trusty took the stand.
2: Right, right.
1: Could you talk about his testimony and why it was so controversial?
2: Trusty was a, a railroad brakeman who had come to Cincinnati around the time of the murder, and he was claiming that he actually drove Pearl Bryan's dead body across the river and gave him gave it to another man who then took it into the woods to bury, or to, not to bury, to uh, to decapitate and leave. And, and he had sort of a manager, let's say, who was f- looking for other witnesses to back this story up. But when they got on the stands, the other witnesses said, oh, no, I don't know anything about this. And Nelson exposed that it was a whole attempt to suborn perjury that the whole story was fake and that that was pretty much the end of the trial because Crawford had hoped to at least elicit some doubt by these witnesses and uh, they were proven to be false on the stand the police had known about Trusty early on and had uh, interviewed the wit- other witnesses and gotten them to explain what had really gone on later on trustee still claimed that he knew that Pearl was killed in Cincinnati and not in Kentucky, but he had been discredited by that time.
1: So, what was the verdict? What happened to Jackson after this?
2: The verdict was guilty, and uh, following that, Walling's trial followed pretty much the same course. He was found guilty as well, and they were Transferred to a couple of different prisons in Kentucky for their own safety. And throughout it, they were trying to get them to confess. Especially Walling's people were trying to get him to implicate Jackson and his own, whatever his own role would be, would be less than Jackson's. And maybe it would save him from the gallows. But uh, Walling stayed firm and pretty much took his lead from Jackson the whole time until just a couple of days before the hanging was scheduled. They said, okay, we're, we're going to give our confessions. And they sat down together in a room and each wrote a separate confession about taking Pearl to a doctor in Bellevue, Kentucky, which was you know, right next to Newport, right across the river. And this doctor, who was recommended by a friend of Walling's, attempted the abortion. And then she passed out, and he thought she was dead. And they loaded her into a vehicle and took her to the site, and then the doctor cut her head off. And apparently, she was not dead, which was why there was so much blood. But not long after the murder, the doctor had been committed to an insane asylum in Kentucky. And after Jackson Walling released their confessions, he had to come out of the insane asylum and defend himself, defend himself against the charges that he he had killed that he had com- committed the abortion and killed Pearl O'Brien. His family, of course, backed him up and and said no. He he was not even at home when this happened, and he had n- no knowledge of any of these people. But a, t- a pharmacist who had filled a prescription for them claimed that his daughter had taken phone calls from Scott Jackson earlier in the week and had told Pearl to come to the house where the abortion was to take place. But it was the confessions were not accepted by the governor who would they were hoping that he would at least give them a stay of execution so they could pre- prepare a, a new trial and he just he just said even if it's even if this is true um you're admitted to have taken a life we're not going to give you any respite for this and then the, when the when the actual hanging took place Walling's people were still trying to get Jackson to say no it was me and Walling didn't have anything to do with it and uh he would go only so far as to say, I know that Walling is not responsible for Pearl Bryan's death. But he wouldn't say any more because it would incriminate him. He wouldn't, didn't want to say, because I killed her. So both of them went to the gallows and both of them died.
1: The execution was botched, right?
2: Yes. A, a good hanging breaks your neck right away and you die this one it took at least 15 minutes for each of them to die because they they did not break their neck and they strangled and there were some some people saying that might have been intentional on the part of the people who set up the gallows and, and adjusted the rope
1: so what do you believe happened to pearl Bryan?
2: i don't think they murdered her in cold blood i think it was a botched abortion where it took place and and who was involved, I don't know, and there's no way to know, but it just does not ring true that someone like Scott Jackson would be involved in a murder like that. And it, it does—it does just the fact that even bringing even to bring Walling into it, which was his responsibility, talking to that reporter, he was trying to connive his way out of it, and uh, it just didn't work for him.
1: So, so you think that there's something to their final confession? They were planning on performing an abortion on her, but before it started, she passed out. They thought she died. They panicked, and decided to get rid of the body.
2: Right. I, yeah, I do think that's. I do think that's true. The doctor was Doctor Wagner, and there had been rumors throughout Northern Kentucky early on that he was involved, and um, they may have picked up on that. And, and used his name for that reason or he may have been the one. Walling's Walling's girlfriend May Smith was the one who set, who supposedly set this up. She sent an, uh, a letter to the governor saying yes, I was the one and it was Dr. Wagner and the druggist also said yes I, I, uh, you know I heard these phone calls and I filled the prescriptions that Jackson and Walling wanted after hours in my in my pharmacy. Um, and he sent that to the governor, and they had, Wagner's family said, "Well, he, there was always a feud between the pharmacist and and the doctor, so that was his motive for doing this." But I think what really makes it fascinating at the end of the day is everybody involved lied, and none of these stories fit together.
1: What about Will
2: Wood? He was he was. Uh, charged with aiding an abortion early on because he, he admitted to sending her to Cincinnati for the abortion. But that was dropped probably because he testified uh, against Jackson. But his reputation was so terrible that he could not. I uh, tried to get into a couple uh, medical schools in Indiana, could not do it. He could not even rent a room. That was denied. He finally joined the Navy. And uh, what happened then after that, I don't know, but it was right before the Spanish-American War, and he was heading for the Pacific. So an interesting ending for him.
1: Hmm. And you say that this murder case became so ingrained in the minds of locals that the story was passed along through folk music.
2: Right. There were three songs about Pearl Bryan. Pearl Bryan's murder. And they, you know, they sort of both, all three of them, follow the, the, the official line that she had come. Although they don't mention abortion, uh, she had come to see her lover in Cincinnati, who took her then and, and killed her. But that's sort of a that's sort of a trope in in folk songs, the murdered lover.
1: Right. Well, th- this has been really interesting. So, tell us how people can connect with you. Learn more about you and your work.
2: Uh, probably the best place to start is um, Murder by Gaslight, and that's just all one word: Murder by Gaslight com, uh, where every week there's a new post uh, about a nineteenth-century murder. And th- on that site, there's there'll be ads for the books and you know other interesting work. I've also I have a newsletter, you know, email newsletter that comes out sporadically, and right now, if anyone wants to subscribe to that, you can get a free copy of a book called *Murder Illustrated*, which is uh, a collection of over a hundred illustrations of murders from 19th century publications, like murder pamphlets, magazines, newspapers, and some you know pretty graphic stuff. But they're all drawings.
1: Cool. So, *Murder by Gaslight* and an online submission. Yep. Well, again, thank you so much. It's so nice to finally meet the person behind Murder by Gaslight.
2: Well, thanks for having me. This has been great.
1: Again, I have been speaking to Robert Wilhelm, author of So Far From Home, The Pearl Bryan Murder. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and as always, please have a safe tomorrow.